welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest is Brandon Jett, professor of history at Florida Southwestern State College. His article, We Crave to Become a Vital Force in This Community, Police Brutality and African-American Activism in Birmingham, Alabama, 1920 to 1945, was published in the January 2022 issue of Alabama Review, and it won the 2023 Milo Howard Award for the best Alabama Review article in the previous two years. Congratulations, Dr. Jett, and please tell us about your article. Hey, thanks, Marty, and thanks for inviting me on here. Before I get into the book, I want to tell you something that I'm almost 100% sure you do not remember. That is that this is really coming full circle because the first time I presented what would eventually become this article, I want to say it was in like 2014 or something. It was at the Alabama Historical Association's annual conference in Mobile, and you were the chair of that conference panel. So this is kind of a cool experience for me. That's great. Yeah. So the article really grew out of my larger dissertation and then eventual book project. And it was one of those things that when I made the transition from the dissertation to the book, it just didn't really fit with where the book went. But I thought it was still really good. And I thought the information in there was really worthy of publication somewhere. So it kind of sat on the back burner while I wrapped up the book manuscript and got that out. And then I thought, hey, I'm going to revisit this and see if I can't find someone who's interested in this kind of stuff. So the Alabama Review was an obvious choice. This is really about the NAACP in Birmingham in the interwar period, so World War I to World War II, and the larger trajectory of the Birmingham branch of the NAACP in the 1920s and 1930s. What the article does is present this trajectory as one of initial action and positive responses from Birmingham's Black community to the establishment of an NAACP branch into the city, to a real disillusionment with that branch relatively quickly, as it seemed like the leaders at the time and the way the organization was structured and focused didn't really appeal to the broad masses of the Birmingham Black community. It was said relatively kind of hyper-focused on the business community, that middle-class segment of the Black population. During the 1920s, there's this lull in NAACP activity and the memberships plummet. And this might be a bold statement, but I guess I'll go ahead and say it. If it weren't for Charles McPherson, there probably wouldn't have been much of an NAACP branch in Birmingham in the 1920s and in the 1930s. He, at different points, was the secretary of the branch and at some points the only operational member of the branch in the 1920s. Where the article picks up steam is in the 1930s, and that is when the Birmingham branch of the NAACP undergoes a resurgence in popularity and begins to shift its focus, or at least that's what I argue in the article, away from like business interests that were mostly applicable to that middle class of the Black community to the issue of police brutality. And I argue that this shift in their mentality is a result of a couple of things. One, police brutality really rises to the forefront of the public's attention, not just in Birmingham, but in the United 
United States more broadly as a result of a federally commissioned study, the Wickersham Report, which details a number of issues related to what they call lawlessness I and mean, crime and policing and criminal justice in the United States. And one of those studies focuses specifically on what they call lawlessness in law enforcement. But the other thing is the presence of the Communist Party in Birmingham. And the Communist Party, for a number of reasons, uses the fight against police brutality as a way to make itself appealing to the black working class. And so with these pressures and the public attention on police brutality, more broadly speaking, the NAACP embraces this campaign throughout much of the 1930s to go after issues of police brutality, particularly focusing on abusive officers. So a very reactive way. There's a case of brutality. They will protest. They will work through the institutions that exist in the city. The NAACP is is famous or infamous for doing that. So not necessarily trying to overthrow any systems, but working within those systems that exist. So they would go before the police chief and lodge complaints. They would go before the Civil Service Review Board and try to get officers who were, in their mind, guilty of abuse, dismissed or fined or put on probation and so And so throughout the 1930s, this becomes the forefront of their membership campaign and their organizational activity. As they progress through the 1930s, their success in in achieving some sort of response from city officials in cases of abuse uh, grows incrementally, but grows nonetheless. And so the argument I make is during the 1930s, as the NAACP embraces this anti-police brutality campaign throughout the decade, more and more people from the middle class, the working class are attracted to this organization and become dues paying members. And so as more and more members join in response to the police brutality campaign, the organization becomes more active in the fight against police brutality, which results in more members. I argue this culminated in 1939 when the NAACP branch had its most successful effort to combat police brutality. I forget the name of the case, but the result was a one-year suspension of the officer who was guilty of committing the act of violence. And that was seen as a real big victory for the NAACP branch. And as a result of victories like that in 1941 and again in 1947, the NAACP branch in Birmingham is awarded the Thalmer Prize, I believe is pronounced from the NAACP, which is awarded to the most active and prestigious branch for that year. And so that's the overall gist of the article. And I'd be happy to go into any specifics if you'd like me to. Well, I do want to ask you a little bit about the Communist Party in Birmingham. If people want to know more about that, which you would think, oh, gosh, Communist Party in Birmingham. How did that happen? (laughs) There's actually a pretty good book about that, isn't there? Yeah, Hammer and Hope by Robin D.G. Kelly is one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. But particularly if you're interested in the history of the Communist Party, it is probably the first book you should read. And if you're interested in the history of Birmingham in this Jim Crow period, again, it's one of those that I'm assuming is cited in every single book that deals with Birmingham, Alabama in this 1920, 1930, 1940 period. You have made pretty good use of that information. Now, going back again to the communists, was the NAACP able through its anti-police brutality campaign to steal some of the thunder from the Communist Party. I think that's one of the fascinating things about these struggles, especially at the local level, right? You would assume, well, the Communist Party was fighting against police brutality, and so was the NAACP. It seems like a natural marriage. But in fact, they were competing for the membership and the support with each other. In the early 1930s, there's a Scottsboro case that the 
Communist Party is all over, and they represent the black men who are accused of rape in that case. It's, it's incredibly publicized. And this is a real black eye for the NAACP because they feel like they have been overlooked. So this is one of the things that launches them into this reorganization, particularly in Birmingham. But the second part is the Willie Peterson case, which is a Birmingham-specific case where he was accused of assaulting and killing a couple of white women in the same early 1930s period. And initially, it is the Communist Party that is going to represent him, but the NAACP actually slides in and convinces his wife to not allow them to represent her husband in his case. And it is a lawyer that the NAACP says they will then pay for who she gets to represent her husband. And so really kind of interestingly, there is this battle between these two organizations that are fighting the same fight in a lot of ways. And they have different strategies and different motives behind all of this. But it's this really interesting struggle between these two organizations over the hearts and minds of Birmingham's Black population. They both are using the issue of police brutality and criminal justice as a way to attract members. The Communist Party and the NAACP actually represent different economic classes. The communists are supposed to be representing the working class, and NAACP tends to represent the middle class. You make that very clear in your article. Can you point out to our listeners some ways in which the NAACP early on in particular was focused on the business community? I can't remember where I found this, but it was in, I think, the NAACP papers, or it might have been in another secondary source. Uh, but there was a pamphlet that the NAACP was advertising in the early 1920s. It was a conference they were hosting, and almost all of the presentations were geared towards businesses. Here's how you can attract more customers. Here's how you can be more appealing to customer bases and the like. And so you can imagine if you're a working class Black guy in Birmingham working long shifts in mines or steel factories that this isn't something that you find all that useful for your day-to-day -day life and probably not something you're going to be willing to put what limited funds you have into supporting that organization. The NAACP, I think, really alienates that working class base by being so hyper-focused on the business community in that earlier iteration of the branch in the late 19-teens, 1920s. It's when the Communist Party comes in. And to be clear, the Communist Party doesn't only appeal to the Black working class, although I think I read some study, probably Hammer and Ho, where they made up like 75% of the membership in the Communist Party in Birmingham. They obviously are appealing to the working class in particular. But I argue that it is this issue of police brutality that allows the NAACP to bridge that divide between the middle class who are concerned about issues of police brutality, but maybe not as supportive of the approaches and the arguments made by the Communist Party and the black working class that is more concerned about the issue of police brutality because they are, by and large, the overwhelming majority of victims of police brutality, not just in Birmingham, but kind of writ large. So I argued that the NAACP is able to use this issue as a, a way to attract a more broad base of support, which is something they failed to do in the early part of the 1920s. And I will say this, if, if it's okay, there's one case in particular of a woman named Edna Davis. She was a black woman from a working class background, and she was abused by police. And this is one of the first cases that the NAACP Birmingham branch takes up that isn't a result of a victim of police brutality who is from the black middle class. And so I argue they not only are tackling an issue, issue that is broadly applicable, but the types of people that they choose to defend, it's a more representative cross-section of the Black community in Birmingham as well. You've said that this was an adjunct to your most recently published book in 2021. Tell us about this book. Part of this does come 
in the book. It's a small part of the second chapter, but it wasn't nearly as robust as I thought the campaign that the NAACP engaged in deserved. But the larger book is not just a book about Birmingham. It actually looks at three southern cities, Memphis, New Orleans, and Birmingham. And it looks at the relationship between African-American communities and the police, not just through the organizational lens that I use in this article. It is more focused on what I call street-level interactions, so moments where Black victims of crimes, Black witnesses to crimes engage with individual officers throughout the process of investigating these crimes. And so in that book project, I'm make an argument that Black communities and individual African-Americans prove really adept at manipulating police, just provide services to the Black community. And again, the police in these communities are all white forces. They are not there to protect the Black community. In fact, I argue they are there to maintain the racial caste system that Jim Crow created. And so the police become the front lines of the enforcement of the Jim Crow racial caste system. But nonetheless, I think I demonstrate pretty effectively in the book that it is through these negotiations that black crime victims and witnesses engage in, whereby they are calling the police and reporting crimes. They are acting as witnesses. They are supplying evidence. In some cases, they are capturing suspects and calling the police and waiting for the police to show up and turning suspects over that the black community really proves adept at using the police as an institution to do something that the police probably wouldn't want to do on their own. And so in similar ways with this article, I make the argument that the NAACP is using the issue of police brutality as a way to combat the Jim Crow racial caste system. So the very institution that is designed to keep it in place is also providing ammunition for the NAACP and other organizations to then challenge that institutional racism that is the Jim Crow system. And so the book looks at these interactions from a slightly different perspective, and that is those street level interactions, which I think is something that has been fairly overlooked by historians where we tend to focus on, you know, the organizations because they have better records and it's a little bit easier to engage with those. Well, you know, we left off the most important thing about your book, which is the title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I'm clearly pretty bad at my own PR. Um, <laughs> the book is Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South. The subtitle is cumbersomely long. African-Americans and Law Enforcement in Birmingham, Memphis, and New Orleans from 1920 to 1945. Published by LSU Press in 2021. And as of, I think, 2022, it was awarded the Florida Book Award. Not because it's about Florida, but because I live in Florida. So it is an award that was given out for Florida authors. So that was pretty cool, too. That's very cool. So this work on your part has generated not only an article and a book, but has generated two prizes. So, yeah. boy, those are some nice feathers to put into your cap, both personally and professionally. So congratulations on both. Thank you. Thank you. As you know, sometimes you publish these things and you put them out into the world and you never get any feedback. Like occasionally someone may reach out to you and say, hey, I really appreciated your book. But, you know, and Twitter has changed that a little bit where you can sometimes engage with people, but it's always nice to get some positive feedback. Absolutely. It is important because we ain't getting rich off the royalties. No, we're not. I'll, although I will say, I don't know if my royalties change at all, but uh, the book is out in hardback right now. I believe it's slated to come out in paperback in fall 2023. If the paperback is not your style, you'll certainly have an opportunity to get it in hard or paperback. coming. I did notice in my own work that the paperback sold a little bit better than the hardback <laughs> sold. And yeah. so after two or three years, I've got enough money to go to the hamburger joint. 
(laughs) That's what I told my wife. I was like, I don't think we're going to get rich off this. And interestingly, a lot of my friends, not that this is pertinent to the podcast at all, but after I won this award for the book, they said, oh, great. Are you going to retire from teaching now? And I said, I don't think you understand how the academic job market and publishing business really work. Uh, No, no, if I'm lucky, I could take my wife out to dinner Mm -hmm. uh, once or twice. Exactly. Brandon, we've talked about your article and we've talked about your book a little bit, but please tell us something about yourself. Well, a little bit about myself. Man, that's hard to fit into just a couple of sentences. I will say I'm a proud husband and proud father of a woman named Poppy Jet and my wife, Dory Cowan. They've been very supportive. I often joke with my wife. She's been so nice to allow me to talk about things like murders and police brutality to her endlessly. She's not a historian. She doesn't really care about history, but she's been a really great person to bounce my ideas off of, even if she's not necessarily giving me feedback, but at least saying things out loud works really well. As you mentioned in the introduction, I work out at Florida Southwestern State College, which has been really great. They've been very supportive of my work. It's a community college, so you know, 5-5 teaching load, but I've been lucky enough to have some research reassigned time that reduces that load to allow me to do research and write, which has been really, really fantastic and is pretty rare, especially in the community college world, so I'm certainly appreciative of that. One of the unfortunate things about what I've chosen to write about is it continues to be pertinent as any number of issues between black communities and police officers, law enforcement more broadly, or the criminal justice system just seemingly continue to spiral. So that's been one of the unfortunate aspects of it, but it's always nice to at least be able to provide some historical insight and context and greater understanding of some of the issues that are confronting us today. So so the way I end my book, and I think you could look at the article in the exact same way, which is we heard a couple of years ago, these calls for things like abolishing the police and defunding the police, and it seemed pretty radical and almost out of nowhere, right? And some of the critics of those movements would say, well, you know, you could just like fix a couple of aspects of it. You just have a few bad apples. And this seems so knee jerk to this one isolated incident. And the argument I try to present when I talk to people about this stuff is, look, the complaints that black communities had in the 1920s and 1930s sound eerily similar to the complaints they have today. And so if you look at it from that perspective, we're looking at 100 years of efforts by black communities and organizations like the one in Birmingham to work through the system and try to reform it in ways that will be more responsive to not just black communities, but people who are served by law enforcement more broadly. And it just doesn't seem like those small reforms have worked to some people's satisfaction. And so I try to just place that in that context, that this isn't knee-jerk. This is the frustration of some people who are calling for these kinds of seemingly radical proposals. They just recognize that, look, these things didn't work when we tried them in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2010, right? Like it is a century's worth of effort. So I think that's really important to keep in mind when we think about the way in which we are trying to work with reform about whatever the critiques are of policing today, that this is unfortunately nothing new and seemingly something that has been around for at least a century. And in addition to that, it tells us something about the place of historical study in analyzing and understanding current events. Yeah. And I think that's something that people in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd killing were very much interested in understanding this greater context. And even my wife, I'm not trying to give her a hard time, but, you know, I I talked to her about this stuff and she was never really all that interested in it. But after George Floyd, she's like, hey, wait a sec. Like, I know you've been telling me this stuff for the last 10 years, but now it makes so much more sense. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, too, that history matters. It's not just writing history for the sake of understanding the past, but for helping us contextualize and understand uh, the present as well. I think that this might be a great place to stop unless you've got anything else that you want to say about this. I think we've covered it, but, you know, I could say, like, thank you. And so I'll say both you're welcome and thank you. 
for agreeing to appear on today's podcast. Yeah, Marty, it's been really great talking to you again. I appreciate the invitation. And it was just, as I mentioned at the beginning, really cool to have you be the first person to actually comment on this paper from 2014. And then now I get to sit here and talk to you about this prize winning article. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And we really appreciate the opportunity to have you on the Alabama History Podcast. And congratulations again on your Milo Howard Award for the best article published in the previous two years in the Alabama Review. And congratulations on your book award as well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.